What's up, everybody? This is Chris Cheesem. I'm a freedive instructor down here in San Diego, and I'm working on a project that I think a lot of you water people will enjoy. Right now, I'm actually heading out to La Jolla Canyon to dive, and I'm excited because we got really good viz. Uh, but there have definitely been times I've gone out in the water, and I'm sure you have too, where you get all geared up and get down to the water and find out that the viz is absolute garbage. It makes for a pretty miserable experience. So we're actually working on an app that will forecast visibility and also tell you, give you live readings of what the visibility is right now. Uh, we hope that this will make you more confident in your dives and also get you in the water more often. We've got a Kickstarter going right now to help us build this app out. Uh, we're about a third of the way there, a little bit more, but would love your support. At the end of the day, we just want to get you in the water more and we want to get more people in the ocean to connect with it and want to protect it. Really appreciate your support. Hope to see you out in the water. Cheers. Very cool idea, Chris. I like that. Uh, I will link to your Kickstarter in the show notes below. Normally, I don't play promotional voice memos at the beginning of this podcast. So for the rest of you, please don't take this as an opportunity to send me a voice memo and talk about your business on the podcast. Um, but I made an exception for this as these guys are just getting going. And frankly, I think it's just a really cool idea. So I hope that they can um, establish it. So if you want to support uh, Chris's work, you can click the link in the show notes below. And for the rest of you, you know how to do it. If you've listened to this podcast before, just uh, record about a minute of audio on your phone. Don't overthink it. Just uh, describe where you are in this big, beautiful, blue marble suspended in vast vacuum space. You're somewhere, and it's pretty cool. So uh, give me some details, and uh, I love playing it at the beginning of the show. It adds a kind of warmth to the episode uh, that I really do enjoy. You can uh, email it to info at kyle.surf, and you can also head over to my website, kyle.surf. That's where you can check out my blog, videos, podcasts, newsletters, all that good stuff. And this episode is with my dad, Eric Tierman. Uh, Eric is the founder of Impact Creative. Uh, he founded it in the late 70s. He earned his MFA at UCLA in motion pictures and taught film, writing, and production at the Art Center College of Design. Eric has traveled to more than 40 countries producing documentary, narrative, VR, promotional, and advocacy video content. He scored an Oscar nomination in 1984 for the short documentary In the Nuclear Shadow and was the director of photography on the Oscar-winning short documentary Women for America for the World in 1987. This was one of my favorite podcasts of all time. And Dad, I'm not just saying that. Um, I, it was very emotional for me. Um, and I wanted to use this opportunity, um, and this episode to set out a challenge to all of you to interview your dads. Um, because I learned a lot of things about my dad that I never knew. Um, he told me stories that I had never heard and, um, our dads aren't going to be around forever. You know, um, Aziz Ansari in his last, uh, comedy special, he had this 
this bit about how like how many more times are you going to get to see your parents and like write that down like is it going to be you think more than 100 times maybe my dad's pretty darn healthy he might live to be 120 and uh i'm grateful that i get to see him often but it's not going to last forever um and i just remember thinking midway through the interview um wow i'm gonna have this audio as long as i live um and i think that podcasts can you know they're different than video interviews they're not um you know they're not canned they're not they're, there's no uh how do, how do i put it they're just the way that you would be hanging out with your dad um and that's that's how this conversation largely felt um and he's just a, a super cool dude with a great outlet uh, outlook and um very grateful to uh have such a good pops so uh if any of you do take on this challenge um let me know how it goes in a voice memo um you know the interviews just write down a few questions you can record the interviews on your phone um with your parents you don't need a ton of audio gear but just do it before you don't um because i i promise you you won't regret the experience uh Anyway, if you do, let me know how it goes uh, and send a voice memo to info at kyle.surf. And uh, as always, thank you, thank you, thank you to Santa Cruz Medicinals for sponsoring each and every one of these podcasts. I've said it often, but the founder, Brendan Rue, who has been on the show before, was the guy that got me to start this podcast. He is a motivator. He is one of those people that loves to pull others up and inspire them and, and give them the little kick in the ass that they need to, uh, to shine. Um, so maybe five years ago, he was the guy that reached out to me on Facebook and said, Hey man, I think that you need to start a podcast. I'd be happy to show you the ropes. Um, we both listened to a ton of podcasts and we immediately became friends. Um, and then it was after that, that he started sponsoring this show, um, with his company, Santa Cruz Medicinals. They make potent CBD products that I now use every single day. I use their CBD tincture, uh, before I go to sleep. It helps me with muscle pain. It helps me with sleep. Um, I use their CBD coconut oil when I cook. Um, I use their CBD nootropic in the morning. It's, they, they just make really good stuff. Um, and they're products that I can stand behind. And if you want to get 10% off, you can head over to scmedicinals.com, type in the code name Kyle10 for 10% off, and I will link to their show notes in the description below. With that, I hope that you all have a wonderful day, and without further preamble, please welcome to the show, Eric Tierman. Yeah, I was thinking before you came over here, you're one of the few people that ha interview more people than I do. Well, I probably have interviewed more people than you have uh, in your short life. Maybe my cadence these days is is more than uh, yours, but you've uh, you've sat across the table with some folks and you're catching been, up with me, though. You're catching up with me. I'm galloping, galloping ahead, galloping ahead. Um, will you tell the story of? Uh, Muhammad Ali and the mirror. Right. Let's see. Uh, I was covering a an Apple event, a uh, computer event. It was a 
kind of a summit that uh, a lot of um, high-profile people were invited to Apple Computer to participate in a weekend of roundtable about computers and what they're good for and why they should have people should have them. And when was this? Oh, must have been the early '90s, maybe '95. And um, a lot of people were there. Richard Dreyfus, uh, Kathleen. Gosh, I'm I'm great with names. I, I'm, I'm great <laughs> with names. Um, was this when Steve Jobs was at Apple too? Steve Jobs was not yet at Apple. This was just prior to Steve Jobs, um, but it was the time of the. Well, new- he started Apple, but he, he was started, he was gone. He started at, Apple. He was gone he, for a certain. He amount was of time. edged out. Yes, right. he got edged out by the board of directors, and then he came roaring back uh, many years later after he had invented uh the next computer and done a few other things um i think he started pixar yeah he did um before he came back to apple then he's like hey check out the ipod yeah so you Um, were up there and how did muhammad ali get roped into this well i don't i i think all these people were willing participants there was a, a a fellow named conwell sharma who was a young guy who made phone calls and he said you know he said if i can get Richard Dreyfus to come, will you come Muhammad Ali, or will you come, um, I mean, there was, there must have been 30, there was an astronaut, there was, there was, there were, there were, there were, it was just a, it was a, it was a who's who of entertainment and um, highfalutin folks. Folks. Yeah. And Muhammad Ali was there. Uh, he had already started, I think, uh, having Parkinson's, early stages of it. But he loved being around people, and he uh, he loved doing magic tricks, and he loved he just loved entertaining people. Did he love doing magic tricks? Yes, he liked he liked doing magic tricks for people. So he would do these uh, these silly little magic tricks for people. Not silly; they were they were they were wonderful. I mean, I, and was and everybody, of course, it's Muhammad Ali. You, you, you know, you just if Muhammad Ali wants to give you a magic trick, you're gonna yeah, sit I mean, and watch. He'd, he'd hang out in the hallway. It was very informal. It wasn't like lots of presentations. But at lunchtime, um, oh, wh- wh- so wh- the first thing that happened, I think, was that uh, yeah. Well, so I had I had this mirror that I would take around with me when I interviewed execs, and it was it's a, just a little hand mirror that. Um, would re- react to light when you pick it up uh, and light shined on this little hole, it would start laughing, just like cracking up. When you're looking at the mirror, it's laughing at you. And I used it once for on for Al Shugart, who's who's one of the founders for of uh, Seagate. And I uh, was interviewing him for something, and I put it on the side of his table. He came in, he was a cranky, cranky guy. And um, he... He had his handlers, and they were all kind of tiptoeing around him. And I said, you know, you may want to look at your hair because it's kind of sticking out. And and uh, he said, I don't give a fuck about my hair. <laughs> <clears throat> I just let me do this thing and get let me get out of here. And I said, well, you know, uh, I said, there's a mirror right there. And he picked it up, and it started laughing at him. And you, you could hear a pin drop in this room. It was like um, all his handlers just thought, the, the the roof is going to come off this building. He just roared with laughter. It was one of those like 
you know, you, you stick your neck out and sometimes it gets chopped off, but other times it just lightens everything up. And so he, he just became much more um, fun and interesting. And, and the interview went way better, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Um, anyway, I knew Muhammad Ali would enjoy this mirror, so I gave it to him and he just cracked up. And for three days he took this mirror around and, and gave it to people to look at themselves and they'd be, it would laugh at them and he'd, he'd get a bit, he just, and I could see him, I just watched him from afar. It wasn't like I, now I'm now Muhammad Ali's best friend. I just handed it to him. I said, I think you're going to enjoy this. So I had, a, I had a couple of them. I knew where to get them. Um, but one thing that happened with Muhammad Ali, which was kind of interesting, was that uh, at, uh, at lunchtime, um, I guess he fixed, or somebody fixed him a plate of food and gave it to him, and he sat down and his hand started shaking and because he had Parkinson's, and his half the plate dumped off onto his shoe. And I was standing at the other side of the room, this is a room that was filled with Apple executives and, you know, some people who were pretty high up in the, in the media. And I know at least half the people in the room knew this, that this had happened. That, the, that the food that had the spilled food had, off yeah, onto he, he his... he was sitting there and the food had, had dropped on his shoe. It's like a big, big glop of food just like fell onto his shoe. And he, you know, he kind of put his plate over and didn't really know what to do. I just walked over and got down and cleaned his shoe off because nobody else was doing anything. It was, it was, it wasn't like some, I don't know. It just, it was a, it was a great moment in my, you know, yeah. When you're, when you're making documentaries, so many kind of interesting things happen and you're in so many different predicaments and you're, you're acting on the spur of the moment so much of the time that some things just seem to go just be natural you just do something you just do it it's not you know you yeah well you and, and you just do what a, a decent person would do well, in an every, otherwise highly I, pretentious i think the situation. room was filled with decent people i think they just felt like oh my god this is awkward what should i you know what what do we do here? isn't somebody yeah. else going to clean up the shoe yeah somebody else should do that. i mean i don't know not just treating people like people yeah. You, you've always been good at that, right? Which right. which lends to being a good interviewer because if you just sit across the table from someone as a person, they're going to relate to you as a person, right. and that becomes harder and harder as someone reaches fame and fortune because everyone's kissing their ass all the time, and right. they appreciate something like a laughing mirror all the more. Exactly. For the last ten or twelve years, I've I've had the really good fortune of of recording uh, the satsang, uh, satsangs of Adi Ashanti. And he's, he's a really interesting fellow. I mean, his, um, his people came to me 12, 15 years ago and said, we need, you know, somebody to uh, record these satsangs yeah. professionally because so people want DVDs of them. For people who don't know, Adi Ashanti is a, a Zen Buddhist spiritual leader. Um, also someone who has been around the Santa Cruz area for years and years. And I did my first uh, week-long silent meditation retreat up at Mount Madonna this last year. And Adi Ashanti was um, the guy that led the whole course. And I was very impressed with 
his clarity of thought and lightheartedness and sense of humor. And it was so, so not dogmatic. Uh, and he actually just did a pod. I want to try and get him on my podcast, but he just did one with um, another meditation teacher, a neuroscientist named Sam Harris. And it was very interesting about um, spirituality, meditation, um, all that good stuff. He, so, he's, he's the opposite of dogmatic. I yeah. mean, but the, the point that I was making was going to make uh, following up on your last comment was that this last satsang that I did two weeks ago, uh, he usually speaks for an hour, hour and a half, and then he opens it up to people who want to have, who have a question or just want to make a comment. And most people get up and say, um, oh, it's so weird, so wonderful and all this. And one guy got up and he says, how are you, my friend? And Adi, is, Adi looked back and he says, oh, it's such a nice thing to be referred to as a friend, you know, as, as almost like an equal. It, it was just like a, it became a conversation rather than you're most holy on high. I mean, when he comes into the room, Adi Ashanti usually says, I don't know why you people are here. I'm just selling water by the river. I'm telling you things that you already know. I'm just maybe reminding you that you know them, you know what I'm saying, and maybe I'm putting it in a different form. Yeah, but he doesn't put himself between you and God. No, he's the, he's the, he's the ultimate demystifier of spirituality, yeah. debunking. But he's constantly fighting against people trying to make him into something that is... That Absolutely. he's not, you know, and it's really easy to fall prey to that. Um, so I would bet that it would be nice to have that experience of someone just saying, hey, how are you, my friend? Right. Yeah. Anyway, that was... I and both. you've shot Adi Ashanti for years, right? 12 to 15 years, I think, I've been doing this. And it's a job, but it's it's one of my favorite jobs that's come up just out of the, out of the you know, doing videos... You, it's like the e-ticket. If you, if if any of your viewers are old enough to remember the e-ticket in um, at Disneyland, it was the it was the expensive ticket. You would mm -hmm. get a ticket book when you went to Disneyland, and there was the A tickets, which were the cheap rides, and then B B through E. And E tickets were the best rides of all. Mm -hmm. And so, video to me for the last forty five years, fifty years has been the e-ticket because you get into places that you would never ever in a million years get into because you have uh, the ability to record something and people will take you on a tour to the the most intimate or the most um, the, just to the inside vaults of what they know and what they they are doing they will show you the they will give you a perspective unlike you would ever get if you were just, observing you were just walking in and using your eyeballs if you have a camera they want to show you things that nobody else um has seen only they know about um so i i look at that as as really fun plus you when you're looking at in through a viewfinder you're seeing a frame that you've created it's a composition you're looking at you know kind of a balanced picture of whatever whoever or whatever you're filming but if it's somebody and you have your headphones on and you're look you've got your eyeball on that viewfinder you are looking at them 
closer than most people usually look at them. You are seeing their eye movements, you're seeing their facial movements, uh, and you you know you can you can you can kind of tell if somebody's yanking your chain or or you you can kind of tell and you know I've I've done that with speaking of Adi Ashanti I've been doing I've done that for twelve or fifteen I've looked for the cracks in that guy for twelve years you're, you're on years. the close up shot yeah always on the close up shot yeah. with the headphones and I can't find the crack I don't know the guy just he just he 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 surprises me every time. But anyway, he's really done the work. Yeah, he's done a lot of work. Yeah, he uh, he just he, he didn't get it there. He didn't get there without just banging his head on the wall for years and just saying, "I got to find out what is the nature of reality." That's what his goal was. What is what is the what is real? What's true and what's real? And, and one story he, he always told was was where he he got it. He went in a cafe and he said, "I'm only going to write what's true." And he found it, he, he'd write something down and he'd rip it up because he just, he, you know, and so he practiced writing only what was absolutely true for for everybody, not just for him, but for, for a, a truth, which is, which is kind of an interesting exercise. Try to write a truth down. Yeah, there's a good one that I heard recently, which is if, you, if you're in a car and you think that someone's an asshole behind you, can you be absolutely sure that that person's an asshole? Because you, you take it back far enough, like, okay, well, who is this person? What was their day like? What's their life like? What was their childhood like? And you start to gain, gain empathy for yeah. them. You and, don't know what kind of battles other people are fighting. Yeah, you never know. You have no idea. And the best way to, to confront somebody who, who may be acting out some way is to kind of uh, assume that they've got a, a lot, a lot of struggle going on, and um, just you know listen to them. I I, I think I, I mean everybody could be better listeners. I think. What? <laughs> yeah. What? Huh? What did you say? What uh, have you found as an interviewer and listening well has worked? Do you have any favorite um, ways that you'll start an interview or questions that you have developed that you found worked really well for opening people up? I think uh, number one is eye contact because people will say things if they know you are, at least your eyes are on them. Eye contact is, is really uh, number one. And Though I haven't done it many times, the times that I've had a chance to um, have someone make contact with the person who's being interviewed, it sometimes it can be a little weird, like hold their hand. Now, I'm not going to hold some executive's hand while I'm interviewing them, but I've done interviews with people where I wasn't the interviewer, but I was the camera person. I just said to the interviewer, I said, I want you to stand really close to that person. I'm going to shoot over your shoulder and I want you to hold their hand while you're asking the questions. And that contact... Do you have an example of this? Yeah, this this movie I made back in 84 called In the Nuclear Shadow, we interviewed 100 children about their fears and thoughts about the threat of nuclear war. It's called In the Nuclear Shadow, What Can the Children Tell Us? 
And it was based on a study that uh, a fellow named John Mack of Harvard had done with some children in Russia. And, um, and we basically used his same list of questions, maybe. But we, we handed this list of questions out to, to children of all ages who wanted to participate in this, in this documentary. Asked them to take, take them home and check the questions that they would feel comfortable answering so we had a everyone had their list and these are the questions we asked them we didn't ask them anything else um and um we just asked them the questions we got a shit ton of 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 interviews answers and then we crafted a story that that basically depicted uh and showed how children uh, how it affected children psychologically in in the course of in 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 this was in the early eighties. This was like eighty three, eighty four, somewhere. So there. right in the height of the nuclear right. We had done conversation. Another, we had done another movie called The Last Epidemic: Medical Consequence of Nuclear Weapons and Nuclear War, which got huge, uh, you know, distribution. Uh, it was on was mentioned in Life magazine and Time magazine. It was and the main one of the main people, Helen Caldicott, was on the cover of Life magazine, and it was shown in Congress. It was shown in the Soviet Union. It was shown. It was the principal organizing uh, movie for the Green Party in Germany. It was Creative Initiatives. They showed that movie every time Creative Initiative, which became Beyond War, later. It was just it was went crazy. I mean, it was one of those movies that. I just made for my dad because he was he was he was uh, going around to rotary clubs speaking about the dangers of nuclear war and he told me there was a conference in San Francisco these physicians were going to be talking about nuclear weapons nuclear war and I said who wants to I said dad who wants to who wants to know about that that's the scary stuff he said will you just go shoot it for me and so I shot it and he pulled some excerpts out of it and I kind of helped him tell a story with the excerpts and then I put in some visuals. He said, I don't need any visuals. I said, yeah, you need some visuals. (laughs) She needed a couple of visuals. You can't just have talking heads for 36 minutes. We made this 36 minute movie and I put in, you know, I put in a little placard at the end of the movie because at the end of the movie, your, your head is on the, you're, you're, you're not feeling particularly good. You're feeling like, holy crap. This is bad. This is really bad. Because you got the head of Harvard Medical School talking about, you have people who are talking about what happens with a one megaton bomb hitting San Francisco, what actually happens. And it's it's beyond comprehension, beyond comprehension. Um, and so your head is kind of on the ground at the end. But I put this placard, which was a little, you know, a little brainstorm. I, I feel like at the time... Uh, and all it said was, you can help by showing this program to your local organizations. That's all it said. And you, you have no idea how many people asked for copies of the movie to show to their local organizations. People were buying copies and showing it, just taking it. From VHS pe- copies. V- well, VHS hadn't even come in yet. This is 16 millimeter. People would buy 16 millimeters and show them in in little groups around town vhs hadn't even 
hadn't even come. This was 79. VHS was just starting to kind of get in there. And um, so then I started making VHS tapes when people started getting VCRs and pretty much giving them away because wasn't I wasn't. I was trying to make money with the movie. I just wanted to get the word out when I saw that it was really effective. My dad was really the crusader. He just took this movie and ran with it and showed it everywhere. But, um, but we, yeah, we just cranked the copies and just just cranked them out. And then, then we decided, and yeah, go ahead. Was that the the doc that got nominated for an Academy Award? No, no, it never won a prize. It it was the it was the grandfather. It was probably it it could well be the most widely widely distributed nuclear awareness documentary of its time. Obviously there were a bunch of movies that like Day After Trinity and a bunch of other movies that got on public on on the public airwaves and but this was this went from hand to hand. It yeah. just it, now, people still when they uh, when I meet someone in Santa Cruz and they're like, "Oh, you're Kyle." Like, "Is Eric your dad?" They'll talk about the last epidemic. Yeah, well, it was kind of the grand the grandfather, and then yeah. after that, we said, "Well, what's what you know? What about kids?" And then after that, it was, how, "What's the relationship with women in nuclear war?" So we made a movie about women in nuclear war, and that that got actually got the Academy Award. Uh, something I shot, but didn't pick up the the, the golden doorstop, as they say. So uh, I wanted to bookmark your uh, point about holding someone's hand. Mm-hmm. So you were shooting these interviews, and you say that there was a, a moment where you were doing an interview with a kid and holding their hand, and well, it helped them feel comfortable. I yeah, Vivian Verdenrow was the co-producer on the children uh, in the nuclear shadow, and I said, Vivian, from my experience with co-counseling, and some of your listeners may know what co-counseling is, reevaluation education, holding holding another person's hand while you're listening to them is a very effective way to get them to get in touch with their feelings and in um in movie making for me the the uh what is it the 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 gold the golden whatever the the apex the apex yeah where you're trying trying to get to yeah the you know the what i'm trying to get is is to get people to feel something and my belief has always been that feelings are um they're they're catchy they're they you know if you if you hear somebody laugh laughing you you, one tends to laugh if you if you're if you're watching a movie and somebody's crying in the movie just think about it when was the last time you cried in a movie 90 percent chance it was when somebody in the movie was crying somebody on the screen was crying if somebody's laughing hysterically, you're t- one tends to want to laugh hysterically. If somebody yawns, yawn, yawning is a is an emotion of it's a it's a release of tension due to boredom or uh, it, sometimes it can be injury. Yeah, but you're you, gonna feel tired. But 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 it's catchy. Some you yawn, somebody else sees you yawn, and they're gonna yawn too. Stop and, talking uh, about yawning. You're gonna make people yawn uh, while they're listening to this podcast. <laughs> Guarantee like a thousand people well, just yawn. But it, but yawning is good because it it, uh, it 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 releases tension. It releases tension in your in your jaw. I mean, think about these physiological responses. Laughter. Your your body's shaking. You're making all these stupid stupid noises, laughter noises, or crying, you know, these, these, this water's coming out of your eyes. And you just made me yawn. I don't like that. 
<laughs> that, was, that was the magician in you. No, no, it's just it's true. It's true. Crazy these, are, these are these are uh, so anyway. Uh, in movie making, I I I I feel like if I can get people to 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 feel an emotion, that's that's my that's, that's what I've, you're going I've, for. I've achieved my goal. Yeah, and uh, I don't always I don't always do it, but I know that if I can if I can if I can get somebody to cry in the movie, which I've done many times, not by hurting them, but by really Make, drilling down and and make them feel something. Yeah. So in this in the nuclear shadow, we Vivian, I said Vivian, just sit really close to them. I'm not going to see you. I'm going to shoot over your shoulder. I'm just going to do tight shot of of the per, of the child's face. I want you to hold their hand while you're asking them the question. I want you to be like three feet away from them, and we had like oh probably six or eight of those kids who really really broke down and not not broke down they just they just really released a lot of of yeah emotion. kids tend to be great interviews because they're not uh they don't tend to be so self-conscious that they lock up there's something happens to adults uh I'll just speaking personally like when I got into my teens, I started becoming more self-conscious. And then I started to project this version of myself. Like early on when I would be on camera, I would be way over the top. I'd be like, hi, I'm Kyle. And I'm here at the coal power plant down in Chile. And I couldn't just talk normally. And it took a years, and I still feel like I'm working on it, just working on untraining that self-consciousness to just be real and talk like I would without a microphone it's difficult to talk to a camera i mean it's just difficult to look at a lens and 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 feel like you know that you're talking to uh, a, you know a human being out there you have to almost visualize or project a human being that you're talking to i can't do it i i i freeze up if i'm if i look at a lens but if i have somebody next to the lens and i can look at their eyes then it's a little easier i'm i'm not the greatest in front of a camera though i i never felt like I was uh, a lot of filmmakers aren't a lot of filmmakers are way more comfortable behind the camera well makes sense yeah well yeah we we yeah we're, we're very comfortable behind the camera for sure <laughs> hide behind the camera hide behind the media they get you know anyway. when uh, were you introduced to filmmaking oh that's kind of a quick story let's see I went to UC Santa Cruz the year it opened 1965 and I was shooting with my little point-and-shoot camera back then. It was uh, the next best thing to a brownie. Uh, I was shooting a little concert uh, that some friend of mine was in, and this woman came up to me and she said, you know, our photographer was supposed to be here for this shoot, and this is a very important concert, and if your picture comes out, can we use it in the yearbook? And I said, oh, I'd be thrilled. Great. She said, what well, was all I got them developed? And, you know, back then it was like two weeks you get your photographs back. And I showed her this picture. She said, oh, yeah, we can use that. What else do you have? And I showed her a few other things I'd just been shooting around the campus. And she said, well, you know, um, uh, would you like to shoot some of, because our photographer is uh, kind of it's kind of sketchy and he just never shows up. Or, you know, not often enough. How many people were at UCSC? 500, 500 uh, what we'd call 13th graders. Wow. 500, 13th, 500 freshmen and 100 juniors. So there were 600 people the year it opened. And we the 500 freshmen were all in trailers down in the what's now Westfield. Um, and it was like a summer camp. It was, it was seriously like summer camp. So anyway, uh, 
I said, sure, but I don't have a camera. So shh, this editor who was going to try to put the first yearbook of UC Santa Cruz together, uh, she borrowed a camera uh, from Bonnie Banducci and who had a little 35 SLR and uh, she gave me a roll of film, showed me how to put it in the camera, gave me a list and said, go shoot these things. And so, I mean, some of the best things we do in life are things that we just volunteer for because, hey, that could be fun. I, I mean, I could meet some people. I could, you know, find find out some things that I don't know. And, you know, and uh, it's a great way to get to know people just with a, a camera or any kind of camera. So... I started shooting these photographs. I'd shoot a roll of film. I'd bring it back to her. She'd give me another roll of film. Give me a list. I'd bring that back. She'd give me another roll of film. And this happened maybe 30 or 40 times. I never saw a picture. Never saw a single print. And this book came out. And I'd say 80 to 90% of the photographs were mine, which was a total rush. It was a total rush. It was really fun. And they'd, they'd done, you know, great cropping. She was a really good editor. And written little captions under it and anyway they said well uh how would you like to do the second yearbook and this time uh you'd have to print the pictures um and i said well i don't know how to print uh they said well you have to learn so i went to the university of hawaii that summer and i learned how to print with an enlarger and you know develop film and then i came back and i bought this little enlarger and and they said you know, we'll give you a contract to do 300 pictures for this yearbook. And I said, great, great. And they said, when well, we're going to pay you $300 to do shoot and print 300 pictures. I said, great, you know, hey. So um, I put out the second one, uh, printed all the pictures and uh, shot all the pictures. That was really fun. And then because of that, you ask, getting back to your original question, uh, this fellow who was a poet at the university, one of the students had written a poem and he came up to me one day and he said, Eric, I have this poem. It's so filmic. I know it could be really a fun film. And would you shoot it for me? And I said, well, I've never made a movie. I've never shot with a camera before. So uh, he said, well, Paul Lee has a little eight millimeter, regular eight millimeter, you know, film camera. And, and, so he borrowed it and we went out we wrote the poem down and then we just decided what we were going to show with each line of his poem we went out and shot it it was very complicated it was very heady it was called the blood of a poet which i think there was a movie made by cocteau back in the i don't know 40s or something called blood of a poet anyway when i started shooting that movie i thought oh this is it this is the most fun i've ever had so what about it was fun you know it exer it exercised it seemed to exercise every cell in my brain it just my brain was kind of on on steroids it seemed it seemed like i would wander around uh in a kind of a daze just thinking of cool shots cool cool things we could do this we could do that and I remember I went to Europe that summer and uh, I was walking down the Champs-Élysées. I remember this moment. It was just this moment. And I was thinking of this, this, I was just dreaming up this movie about some little girl who invites all these weird people to this picnic who don't know each other. And I, I realized I suddenly stopped and I couldn't remember where the hell I was. I, I didn't know where I was. I was just like, I looked around, I'm going, where, where am I? 
And I thought any, anything, anything that could do that to me uh, has got some power over me. Nothing else had ever had that kind of power. So when I got back to UC Santa Cruz, I said, I can only give this another, you know, a few months and I got to go to UCLA film school. Because there was nothing, there were no film classes at UC Santa Cruz, no photography classes, really. Um, it, was, it was a great, uh, you know, painting, art department, sculpture department, but the other things were, were lacking at that time. Was there anyone that you had that conversation with to make the decision to go down to UCLA? No. I just said I I, I got to go, I got to I got to go to where the filmmaking is happening and where I can learn more about filmmaking. So I transferred to UCLA, and um, you know, and my dad. I remember my dad saying, <laughs> he said, uh, well, "Where are you going to live in West LA? It's so expensive in Westwood." And I said, "Ah, oh, Dad, I'm going to find a mansion in Beverly Hills." And he goes, "I, I just said it because it's kind of a joke," and he goes. Hey, you know what? Somebody just asked me if I knew anybody who might take care of a of a house over on Sunset Boulevard, and I and he called this woman up, this big old empty mansion, thirty room mansion, and I moved in the next week. I got paid to live in a mansion by myself, and you know various people. Is that, is that where the uh, was it Led Zeppelin or Frank? Mm-hmm. Frank Zappa, Zappa, Frank yeah. Zappa, yeah. was that the the same spot? Yeah. So what's the story of that? Well, this is this happened prior to my actually moving into this uh, mansion, but uh, Frank Zappa had had done an album jacket in the backyard. It was an album album called Hot Rats. It's a pink album, and there's a guy with his hands on the edge of a pool, and that pool was in the backyard of this mansion. It was a thirty thirty room mansion, empty. Uh, and I lived there for eight years while I was going to UCLA, and I got paid for living there. And I, you know, while I was going through all through graduate school at UCLA, and then when I was teaching at uh, at the Art Center in Pasadena, so it was great, great for me. I, I had a lot of freedom. It's so nice not have to pay rent. Believe me, I was I was really uh, fortunate. Um, Did it make you want to have a mansion? No, you know what. Beverly Hills is a very peculiar place. I mean, it's beautiful, uh, but I never really met my next door neighbors. They, they uh, Carol Burnett was living the next door down, and Dean Martin was three or four houses down from this mansion on Mountain Drive. And um, I would go out and walking in Beverly Hills, y- you'd get you'd get stopped for walking in Beverly Hills. People drove to the park to take a walk. You don't just walk on the streets. And, you know, at that time, and this was right around uh, the, the Manson murders happened several blocks from my from this mansion. So there was a lot of paranoia and a lot of, and I was just a caretaker. I mean, I, was, I drove around a 49 Chevy, was not, you know, a Lamborghini or anything, but I'd be out on the, you know, I'd be out clipping the, the hedge, and I remember Catherine Hepburn drove by one time, and she waved at me, and, you know, Yoko Ono drove by one time. I mean, it's, it was just like Beverly Hills, you know? But I was... I was Alone. I was alone, making 50 bucks a month. I mean, there were... There were... There were I had relation. I had different relationships in the, in the mansion, for sure, um, over the course of eight years. But uh, with many wonderful. Is that where you learned landscaping? 
Uh, no, I don't think so. I cut the lawn. <laughs> I cut the lawn. I okay, get this. The woman who owned the place lived in the Beverly Hills Hotel in one of the cottages behind the Beverly Hills Hotel, and because that's where she preferred to live, she was just extremely wealthy, and she kept this mansion because she had had a lover there at one time, uh, and she, he lived upstairs. He was a painter, and so his. You could see the outlines of his painting. He died in this mansion. So she was keeping this mansion uh, kind of in, in the, out of nostalgia. Um, but she would call me. I only saw her four times other than the first time I met her when I moved in. Four times in eight years. She lived three, three blocks away. She would call me and she'd say, I want to come over and look uh, and walk through the mansion, walk through the house. And so I'd, she'd always give me three or four days. So I'd run around and I'd water everything and I'd clip everything. And I'd mow the lawn. I mean, I was a terrible groundskeeper. I mean, fortunately. Did you have girlfriends when you lived there for eight years? I did, yes. I did. I did. And, um, yeah. And you just bring them over and hang out in your mansion with, uh, with no well, one yeah, else around. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Totally. It sounds like a great time to be alive. It was a good time to be alive. What about Toby? Even now is a good time to be alive. It is. Toby's mom moved into the mansion at the end of it. At Toward the end, I met Toby's mom and, and Linda. And, uh, Toby's in, my brother, your yeah, son. To Toby. Also Toby, filmmaker. Also filmmaker. Um, but I met uh, Linda in Santa Cruz and, and convinced her somehow to move down to L.A. and, and uh, move into the mansion. We lived there for a year, but then I, I just realized... This this place is a desert. It's a it's a desert. You you, I well it was it became more and more desert for me. So I I kept having in Santa Cruz was in my blood from being here for three years at UC Santa Cruz. It was in my blood. I couldn't get it out of my blood. And I said, we we, well Linda got pregnant, and I said we can't we can't have a we can't have a child here. There's there's no way. There's I mean, no community. No community. There's no community. You have to drive a half hour, 45 minutes to get anywhere to see anybody you know. And I just, I said, we have to, we have to go, we have to go back to Santa Cruz. It's it, anyway. So we packed it all up and I turned the mansion over to somebody else who lived there for many years after that. And I left. How soon after coming back to Santa Cruz did you start Impact Productions? Well, I, I bought the camera gear just before I, uh, pretty pretty close. I mean, maybe three or four months. The I I got a grant from the American Film Institute to do a movie, and with that grant funds, it was about ten grand. I bought some three quarter inch Sony portable, so called portable gear, and back in nineteen seventy five seventy six, portable was 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 not what you not not i mean huge batteries huge camera control units that you have to really dr drag around on a dolly you could not you couldn't walk around with this stuff and shoot portably but but anyway i got it and we started making i came up to santa cruz and uh the first person that called me was eloise smith who was paige smith who was the provost of the first college cal college his wife, Eloise, was involved with the prison system and trying to reintegrate 
um, integrate arts programs in the in the prison system. And she called me one day and she said, Eric, I hear you got some video gear and <coughs> what would it cost to go around to the the five of the maximum security prisons in California and um, interview inmates. And I said, it won't cost you anything. Sounds like fun. Again, volunteer for the things you want to do. Money is just like the, the ultimate bottleneck for most things. You, you can you can maybe get a few bucks out of something you really want to do. I mean, well, <coughs> what can I say? That's that's it's a complicated thing. But anyway, volunteer. Do it anyway. If you, you, you know, even if you don't get paid for it. it, because it almost always works out. So this 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 piece, I had no editing equipment. We went around to five prisons. We interviewed a bunch of of hardened criminals who would really like to have some kind of a program. All they have was was craft programs. They would make they would make belts and you know lampshades and things that would sell in the prison craft store to the people who came to visit. So I got KQED to help me edit that together. I kind of organized it and I took all the material up there. And so with that video that KQED put out, she went to, Eloise went to Sacramento and convinced Henry Mello, I believe it was at the time, to put some money up to do a pilot program at Vacaville, to do a one-year putting artists into these into this facility, various artists, ceramics, ceramic potters, jewelers, dramatists, writers, poets, and these teachers would come in, very low salary, and teach uh, the inmates um, these uh, art skills. Do you rem- did you conduct those interviews with yeah. the inmates? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Eloise and I uh, did it together on the first film, and then the second film, she wanted that whole program documented, so I would just go up by myself. Ninety five percent of all the video I've ever done, I've done by myself. One camera man, one man band. I do the lights, the mics, the camera, whatever. And so I'd go in with my lights, camera, and mic, and I would sit down with somebody and I'd talk to them about what they were doing hmm. and um, and get into a conversation with them. And then, you know, you, you end up with a... Everybody's done this. By this time, you end up with an interview and you have to make it into something that other people want to hear or see. And you juxtapose it with other interviews and portions of what other people want to hear and see and try to make a story out of it. So that that became another documentary. And then there was two more after that. And those those ended up getting paid for. So what I, the moral of this story is volunteer for something. Try to do the best job you can doing it, especially if you really are enjoying yourself. And it will probably turn into... A paid gig. There's a book, in fact, called The Seven Laws of Money. Uh, a friend of mine's friend, a guy named Mike, it was Mike, he was a banker, can't remember his last name, he wrote this book called Seven Laws of what, The first law of The Seven Laws of Money is do what you love, do what you're passionate about, the money will follow, you know, if you got the guts to do it. A lot of people don't. They They think they need to go for the money before they... But I, I've, you know, I did, I, 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 I've done that more times than, than probably has been healthy for me, but because <laughs> I'll get involved in, in huge projects and 
you know. Take a big bite out of them yeah. and say, they, all right. They take a big bite out of me. They take a big <clears throat> bite out of you, yeah. Uh, so how soon was it after that prison piece that you decided that you wanted to start your own production company? So well, and, and so Linda was pregnant, and did you then realize, okay, I got to... We were making a, a we were making a, established. You know, we were making a <clears throat> a record album. <clears throat> yeah, when she got when she got pregnant, she wrote a tune uh, about being pregnant, and I said, "Damn, there are a lot of pregnant ladies out there. I'll bet, I'll bet you that we if you wrote thirteen or fourteen songs, which is about as many songs as usually is on a uh, a record album, I'll bet we could sell millions of these records." So she started writing tunes. She'd only written two tunes in her life, but she wrote a great tune. I had total confidence in her, and she wrote these 13 tunes that that charted the course of the whole pregnancy, right up to the point of of, of Ariel, the baby, being born. Oh, yeah, so, so you, yeah, it wasn't Topia that she was pregnant with. She was no. pregnant with Ariel. No, it was Ariel. That's what we, we said before, that she was pregnant. That it's the, it was the oldest of the siblings that was uh, usually first. The oldest usually, comes that's, first. usually the oldest comes first. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. So, uh, I mean, that, and that, that album called Nine Months is, is online. You can, you can listen to... Uh, a tune or two on and there. And did millions of people listen to those tunes? I know millions of people. I think are afraid of um, of. I, I don't know. I don't know. Pregnancy is a is a very uh, personal thing with most people. But the people who got that album, the people who who that we heard from who got that album, played it, wore that thing out. They wore it out. And especially people who had midwives, because uh, uh, because uh, Linda, uh, we we went with a local midwife, Kate Boland here, and um, there's even a song about her um, uh, on the uh, on the album. Um, yeah, um, people who went with midwives uh, were just enthralled with that album, and we sold a lot. We just didn't, you know, it was a few thousand, <clears throat> but it wasn't my million seller. It was a couple of years of my life working on that, and uh, but it, it was it was great, great fun, another volunteer effort. I mean, <laughs> yeah, good stuff. No, no regrets for sure. It was great. Do you have any uh, advice that you wish you would have given yourself around that age, if you could go back and and talk to your past self? Well, I look at my, you know, I look at you, and I look at. Toby and Ariel and I just I, I watch how you negotiate your lives uh, quite differently than, than how I how I did it myself I I I think <clears throat> there was one guy I interviewed who was the head of a big insurance company down in San Diego and he was about 31 or something and I was I think the same age as he was and I and I I was sent down there to interview him uh and I had to ask him, how did you get to be the head of this giant insurance company? And because I figured either he, you know, his parents ran it or something. He says, no, you know, I got I got started as kind of low on the bottom rung of the insurance company. And then I decided that I, uh, I decided what I, who I wanted to become. 
what what I wanted to actually do. And I said uh, back when I was in my early 20s that I wanted to run this company. And, uh, and I knew that the only way I could do it is to pick the person in the company who was doing the best job running it uh, that I could find and get really close to that person and follow and really learn how that person is doing that. And he said, that's what I did. And I just, I just, I learned from what other people, especially one person who was running the company. I just, I just followed his example and I repeated his example. Every, 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 everything I, and a lot of it, that's a hard thing to do. I mean, it's hard to, to change your own patterns and your own, uh, sense of how things should be and kind of give yourself over to, you know, watch another person and how, how they make, how they, how they judge things, how they, how they meet people, what they, what they say, how they talk, what, what they do, what they, how they dress. I mean, everything he, he modeled himself after this person. I mean, that's one way of, of, of doing what you want, end up wanting to do. You may not want to run a company. I mean, it, that's a definitely a, but what was your point about how you've organized your life differently than than your kids have? Um, uh, or maybe the point was more about mentorship. Yeah i I wish I wish I probably could have learned a lot more from other people who'd already made the mistakes that I felt like I needed to make myself. I mean, we learn from our mistakes. I probably could have studied more about how other people, the mistakes that they'd made. I probably could have watched and learned from those things. But, you know, it's so tough because so many things happen so quickly that you just have to kind of have a, I think, just have a positive attitude that you can be, you can solve things relatively quickly no matter what comes at you and not back away from hard problems just figure it out you know don't worry don't worry about things that haven't happened don't jump hurdles that aren't there yet you know if you want to get to you want to jump 10 hurdles don't jump them all before you jump the first because you could make a a left-hand turn or somebody could throw an opportunity down to you and what are you gonna say no I'm not gonna do that because I've got already figured out my trajectory just you gotta keep your blinders off and open to but I've I've had so many people tell me the exact opposite you know like oh you have to specialize and you really have to you know put your head down and really go for the goal and if you have a you gotta have a two-year goal and a five-year goal and a 10-year goal it's like I've never had any of those things <laughs> I never I never had more than a one-month goal seriously I mean, I really, I, I mean, sure, I wanted to complete something, but I didn't, never knew how long it would take. I'd always just try to do it as most efficiently as I could and learn from my mistakes and try not to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. But I, I really have never had the goal of, of. I mean, I always wanted to make a feature film, and but I credit your mom, Kimberly, for um, facilitating that happening you know, just saying, you can do this and I'll help you do it. And 
you know, and we ended up doing it. Yeah, she's a damn good producer. She is a damn good producer. <laughs> well, I mean, she's she's a make it happen kind of person. Yeah. In fact, in fact, I think she had that was her license plate at one time. Make, make it, well, make it fun. Make it, make it fun. And, make it fun and, was and her make, license plate. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And uh, that's, well, that's part of it. Now that we're onto it, give the give the steel heel story. That was right when I was born, right? Uh, you were because you did make pretty young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. 19. Right around the early '90s, it came out in. Uh, it came out in, yeah. I shot it in ninety eighty nine, and it came out in ninety three. It took me four years to edit it because I was trying to make money shooting corporate videos and whatever other documentaries I could do. So I would wake up at four or five in the morning and edit for a few hours, and I'd go to work and I'd come back and I would. Uh, it, it'll, it'll. I want to go. I want to see Steel Heel again. I haven't uh, seen that movie in a while. Yeah. Just bring over a copy for me. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. But what was Steel Heel about? Steel Heel. I was on my motorcycle down at UCLA, and I turned a corner on Hillguard and Sunset Boulevard. And I, as I was turning the corner, I looked down, and I think I had a little steel tap on the back of my boot. And I put my my foot uh, kind of on the ground when I was turning the corner, and I noticed that a spark shot out from the back of it, my boot. And I'm riding my motorcycle, and I'm going, Man, that was cool. I wonder what it would be like if uh, if my entire uh, heel was made out of steel. And I go, heel, steel, steel, heel. Wow, there's a there's a name for a movie. <laughs> so I proposed. I I uh, I had made some movies at UCLA, and they they this agent got interested in me, and so he he said, "What what do you got? What what ideas you got?" And I said, "Well, I got this this movie about this." this night rider who's kind of goes up against corporate America and he's has a steel heel on his boot and <clears throat> he leaves his heel imprint kind of like Zorro. Um, she said, Oh, that's great. Let's, you know, write that thing up. So I spent a, a year or two writing a screenplay up and <clears throat> it got optioned and, you know, people bought it option and that, which means they give you a little bit of money to hold on to it for six months or a year. And, it never went anywhere and that's kind of at the point where i said screw this i'm going back i'm going to santa cruz so i came back to santa cruz and uh yeah and then um when kimberly came along this i kind of dusted the script off and we put a i think we put a mortgage on the house and made this made this movie for about a hundred thousand dollars we we spent a hundred thousand in cash and wow we, uh, yeah, we borrowed a bunch of money, all of which I paid back, uh, paid back the mortgage too. Um, just making corporate videos over the years. But um, we got every location. There were 30 locations. There were 30 speaking roles. And there were uh, 30 speaking roles. And, uh, yeah, 30 actors, 30 uh, locations, and 30... What else was there 30 of? I remember it was so weird. It was 30. Um, anyway, we got all the locations for free. Every location, uh, Kimberly Kimberly negotiated getting all these lo <laughs> locations for free. And we paid everybody. I decided the only way we could make this movie was if I paid everybody, actors and crew, $200 a week. That's what they got paid. $200 a week. 2000 a week deferred. So whatever number of weeks you put into this movie, you would get, if the movie made money, 
you get 2000 bucks for that week that you put in. <clears throat> and that went for everybody, you know, cast, crew, writer, director, you name it. We were all, you know, playing equal. Um, and we were all busting our ass trying to make this movie work. And um, we used local talent. And uh, it was really fun. It's so much fun to, to, to create a scene and have people walk through a scene and say things that you want them to say and, you know, do things you want. It's just so much fun. That's all I can tell you. Um, anyway, <clears throat> I, yeah, it, I, I, I got it finished. I took it to New York Film Festival. And I had a bunch of people say, oh, we'll give you $8,000 for Argentinian rights. We'll give you $5,000 for Cuban rights. We'll give you... $2,000 for, and I said, look, I can't sell all these individual territories because if I get a real distributor, they're, they're going to say, well, we, you know, we don't want to distribute because you've sold all these, all these territories already. And so I didn't sell any of the territories and ended up, long story short, I got a great t-shirt. I, I got a distributor, but the distributor turned into an answering service after about eight months. <laughs> and after they'd sold all the territories, uh, they went out and sold all the territories that I could have sold. And uh, I never saw Dime One from them because, oh, you know, the expenses for the poster and the, this and the, that, all these things are so expensive and they had to, you know, offset the cost. And all I got was a lousy T-shirt. I got a great T-shirt. Uh, local, local artist Nick Koenig uh, produced that beautiful uh, design and uh, incredible artist. Uh, his son, Manu, is uh, running for supervisor. I know. I'm actually going to throw Manu a party. Good. I like him. Yeah. I, yeah, he's he's a smart guy. He's running for local uh, supervisor. I'm yeah. a big fan. Me too. Yeah, local politics. It's important yeah. stuff. Yeah. All these, you know, so every, you know, so anyway, that, but it was just a lot of fun and, uh, and I'm, no regrets. I mean, I, I'm still, still, still got that twinkle in your eye. Still surviving. I'm. Just, I feel like I'm just getting started. Honestly, to be honest with you, I. I How old are you? Seventy-two. Seventy-two. Yep. Uh, and I've, I've, you know, I've just, I've got so much energy to, to do more things. I, um, yeah, I'm, you know, we've been making movies for, I mean, lots of. Lots of lots and lots of documentaries over the, for forty years, and lots of corporate promotional branding movies, uh, experiences, you know, and AR and VR and projection mapping, and just you know, wonderful things that that video affords. And now it's even easier. Oh, it's so much easier now to shoot and to edit than it ever was back in uh, in the day when I started. Hmm. It's just a, it's a whole, it's a whole nother. Where do you think that you, uh, got your attitude from? My attitude? What's my attitude? Yeah. Just the can do attitude. The, like you've got energy, you do it cause it's fun. Boy. I just, or I, I mean, maybe it's not even the attitude. It's just, uh, I'll, I'll let you know where I'm going with this, but your dad, my grandfather was kind of the poster boy for the Bernie Madoff scandal right because he lost all of his money at age 90 and then went back to work at ben loman's supermarket and said hey what did he say he said you know if i didn't think i'd be around for at least another 10 years i wouldn't be back working here or but he had something to say about 
Yeah. Just so he, he said he was still able-bodied, and so he'd go back to work. Yeah. He was, went back to work for 10 bucks an hour after losing three-quarters of a million bucks. But um, he he just he enjoyed people. And in the end, you know, whether you're making 10 bucks an hour or $10 million an hour, you got problems if you're making $10 million an hour. You got you got you know you you got problems. You're making ten dollars an hour, and this this is in the economy that we're in right now. But if your if your attitude is, I mean, if you if you if people enjoy playing with you in the sandbox, you're gonna go wherever you want to go. It in the end, it kind of boils down to that. Like when you're a little kid, and you can play well with other kids, or you enjoy other kids, and you kind of let them. Uh, shine you let other people shine uh, I, I I mean why not why not let other people shine give credit give give the credit away credit and money those are the two downfalls we I mean that that's what causes more conflict among people than anything else the especially in this business it's credit and money it's it's a bottleneck for everything it's a, a bottlenecks projects oh i can't do it i don't have the, i don't have the money to shoot it it's like you don't need money to shoot a video anymore you don't need money you can buy a 300 you know what i've been making this movie on heroin addiction uh there's a there's a plant in africa grows in gabon called iboga and it's a uh it's and if you scrape the the scrape the part of the root of this plant and you take a pill of the capsule of this stuff you have a um, uh, you, it's an antigen, so it, you you basically it's like it's like uh, it's ayahuasca. It's like a real strong ayahuasca. It's trip. a real strong. It's like the grandfather. Yeah, of, but it can get you off of heroin. What it does is it 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 keeps your cravings. Uh, it it basically eliminates your craving, which is really tough, and with withdrawal, it 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 eliminates your withdrawal. So so you. So you actually go into an experience that can last two to three days where you're reliving your life day by day. And since most addiction is caused, is, is jump-started by some early childhood trauma that we have buried, you go, you revisit your, your life, especially your early childhood, uh, and all of the memories that have uh, that have accumulated to get you to a point where you feel like I need to shoot up in order to feel normal. I need to take a drug to feel normal. And that's why that's, it's like, you, you can't blame somebody who wants to feel normal. Who's got, who's carrying around so much stress and so much anxiety that if they take one little pill, they go, Oh geez, now I feel, I feel okay. I feel okay. And then they get addicted to that feeling, and physiologically addicted to, uh, to to the medications. Well, anyway, iboga will take you through a journey. Anyway, the point of the story was, <clears throat> this woman named uh, Lakshmi Narayan came up to me and said, "Eric, I I want to do this movie about iboga." And I said, "Well, I've got too many projects. I got I got way over." She said, "Well, let's just go talk to these two women who who've lost two, their sons here in Santa Cruz." And they they died from heroin overdose. These these are women who live up in Bonnie Dune, you know, upper middle class people. 
lost their sons to heroin addiction. And so I I took a camera. I said, okay, I'll go out there with a camera. And we went and shot with a red camera. It's, it's an expensive camera. You know, lovely scene. Got great interviews with them. We put a little promo together. But and she, her, her goal was to raise a bunch of money so that we could go out and really, you know, raise two or three hundred thousand dollars which uh i said more power to you i'll be happy to help you out if you can raise that much money but for what it's worth we put a five minute piece together that essentially says what iboga does if you're interested and if you believe it's true and medical science we have doctors talking about it whatever so she called me the other day and she said I've got this woman. She will. She'll. She'll allow me to interview her and take and document her journey. And so I, she said, "Well, how, how how can I do it?" And I said, "Well, buy a little pocket Osmo. Pocket Osmo is a little DJI camera, three hundred fifty dollars or something like that. It's like a Steadicam. So it's a little tiny Steadicam. It looks like a lipstick tube. It's that small. It's got a little head on it. The same kind of." gimbal that has that you see on these drones that just keeps perfect perfect horizontal and stead totally steady <clears throat> and you just plug this thing into your phone your phone becomes the, the the screen and you walk with this thing or you set it up and you interview i said the sound is you know well you know everything's everything's relative but if you can get it if you can get into a situation with this thing and get the recording so she bought it. She took and she followed this woman to Tijuana, and then she took her to Cancun, and she got all this all this material. She called me today. She's just like, you know, she's like, I got it. I got I got all this material. Now I'm going to edit. And I said, Yeah, just. I said, She said, What What do I do? And I said, Well, go through and throw everything out that you don't never want to see again. That's what I do when I edit. <laughs> throw everything away that you don't never want to see again, and then look at it again. And Get the your interviews transcribed so that you can actually read the words, read what they say, so you can hook it together. That's what I mean. I just, I just told her basic the basic stuff, and uh, so she's really excited to get in the editing process because editing is where the rubber meets the road. You know that anybody can shoot. Anybody's got a camera. Anybody's got a phone. You can shoot a million videos, and it's when you get into the actual trimming of that video and juxtaposing it with other pieces of video you've shot that's where the movie making actually is that's when the story gets told and you can cut it a million different ways yeah i love editing there's a very meditative aspect to it Mm -hmm. all those youtube movies that i was making early on man i i really enjoy the process of finding those little moments and there's kind of musicality to it and it's just uh it's a good, especially when it's something fun that you're editing. You know, if you really like going back, it's it's a good uh, way to revisit, uh, you know, a memory. Yeah. And and then tell that story and create a little narrative, a little moment that you're never going to forget. Yeah. It's fun toward the end of the editing process for me, and it's 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 a struggle in the beginning. It's a, it, I mean, I once I eliminate all the things that I don't like, that's the easy part. But then uh, attempting to construct something that is really powerful, uh, it just it takes a, takes me a long time. So and, did you, when you were making this Iboga doc, did you get to interview any heroin addicts before and after they experienced Iboga? Uh, we interviewed people who had taken Iboga several times, several people who had taken Iboga, <clears throat> doctors who 
you know, before, after, no. Most people before are really, they're not really wanting <laughs> you to... They're not for, up for the interviews. They're not particularly up for the interviews. They they don't, yeah. They, they uh, I understandably. Uh, so that's why, and Lakshmi was looking for somebody who would, who would um, willingly be videotaped um, and this, this woman was, was a good subject. Well, I'll really be fascinated to see what she comes up with. Mm. What is your relationship with the Santa Cruz flea market? Well, <clears throat> um, my relationship with the Santa well, I mean, it's uh, Santa Cruz. Well, it, it's, a, it's a land of opportunity. Um, I look at it, at it as, as a fun uh it's an adventure. It's basically treasure hunting for me. I, you know, I, I see potential in a lot of different things. I see potential. If somebody has a box full of weird plates, I'll, I'll look at it and I'll go, I wonder what I could do with a hundred plates that are exactly the same in, you know, and, and, and they want to just give the stuff away. They want, if you, so if you can figure out what you might be able to use it for, or what you can create out of it, or what kind of tool it will save you time in the process of uh, of your life. Um, it, they're basically giving stuff away. They're giving it away. So most people don't like clutter in their life. I don't mind clutter. I I actually thrive on multiple, many different projects, home projects. I mean, so many things. I think probably ninety five percent of everything I uh, have at my where I live came it w- came from the flea market or garage sale or whatever. I I mean I'm I, I'm. What have been some of your most prized treasures that you found at the flea market? Well, I I I bought a Neumann microphone, a stereo Neumann mic that was probably three or four thousand dollars. I think I paid twenty dollars for it. I mean, <clears throat> so. But these are these are these are things that they're so individual. It's like you you can't go there looking for a Neumann mic. You'll never find it, or unless you went there for twenty years every single day. Maybe something you know. You just have to be kind of looking at things, and you look at the people who are selling the things, and you say, you know, what is it? Can I use it? I mean, I, I. Yeah. You like giving things away too. You like having the thing that someone needs. I probably remember everything anybody's ever asked me. Do I have X? Or if I happen to see something at the flea market, would I pick it up for them? And I have stopped buying couches for people. I uh, stopped stopped buying large things for people, beds, things like that. Oh, uh, it's not quite the right color, Eric. Uh, okay. Well, it's a really nice purple couch. Actually, I got I, I think Foster ended up with a purple couch. So, so this is my mom's current husband, my current stepdad. Can you tell he me? was actually looking for a purple couch, I think. So what was the situation? <laughs> I think I had. <laughs> I don't remember. I, I've, from the, the way that it was told me is that uh, Foster was moving into a new house and he needed a couch. Mm-hmm. And you said, oh. I have a couch. I happen to have a couch. I happen to have a couch. <laughs> it was probably. A- and you said, "What color would you like?" <laughs> and Foster said, "Well, my favorite color is purple." And he said, and you said Boom. I-, "I have a purple couch for you." <laughs> Sometimes it works out that way, 
But I mean, I'll buy things and I'll buy backups to things. If somebody's going to sell you a crosscut saw for three dollars, and it looks like it works, are you are you going to pass it up? Even if you have two other crosscut saws, of course you have to have a place for it. But sure, I'm going to buy it because somebody's going to want a crosscut saw, and and I'm going to have it and I'm just going to give it to them. So yeah, I I do enjoy that, and uh, I don't know. I mean, it's just fun. It's just like it's like you're, it's like play money. You can play, you, you know, and you don't, and you know what? I, other thing I found up, most people go, oh, well, the stuff's ripped off out of the flea market. It's like, <clears throat> nobody's going to sell a crosscut saw for $3 that's ripped off. There, it's going to be somebody who just doesn't want it anymore and wants it out of their life. They, or they're moving or they, 99% of the people who sell at the flea market are, will tell you, oh, there's a little chip on the side over here. I want you to see that there's a little chip over here or that there's a little scratch over here. They'll tell you what's wrong with the thing. And, you know, I've, I I just find more often than not, and it's fun, you know, sometimes I'll give somebody more than they ask for, for it, and they kind of look at me like I'm freaking crazy. But I, it, I, get a, I get a joy out of doing that too, just paying people a little bit more. We, <laughs> It's... Yeah, and it, it's kind of it, like when you're. It's kind of like your mother, Kimberly, would we we would crawl, when we would go to a toll booth, we we go to a a toll booth at a, at a on a bridge, and we would pay for our five dollars to get across the bridge. But we'd always we'd always give five dollars for the car directly behind us. But the deal was that we couldn't look back to see who the person was, and we couldn't. Uh, we just had to drive, drive on, you know, not even think or, but we'd always pay for the person behind us and we just take off and yeah, it's five bucks, but there's some, some kind of a feel that you get. It's a kind of a just spreading and we, we, we were wealthy. We, we had, but it was just too much fun. I mean, you're going to spend five bucks for a couple of cups of coffee for God's sake. <clears throat> and to have that much fun a lot of times people would just roar up next to us and yeah give us you know it's like you know just give us a high sign or whatever you know for for paying for them just because it was so uh, it's a little know. love bomb yeah it's a love bomb it's a little love bomb and it puts a smile on people's yeah. face it's the same as having a little laughing mirror yeah it's the same as my most prized possession the double bike the three-wheeler that your mother gave to you and gave to me it's a two-seater double bike that i've had for about a decade now and it's my most prized possession i love it <laughs> you because, still use it oh all the time <laughs> really it's right oh. here in the garage it's well oiled up well oiled. oh yeah wow. yeah from Good. from all of your oil teachings oil glue and paint you can don't fix forget anything oil, oil glue and paint. i'm gonna put that on your gravestone <laughs> oil glue and paint you can fix anything yeah yeah, uh, I like it because it puts a smile on people's face. You bike down the street and they give you the thumbs up or the shaka. The world's heavy, man. I like that you brighten it up. I appreciate your perspective. Anybody can brighten it up if they just, you know. You, you notice that almost anything you say can be, can be, can be turned either way negative or way positive. You could say about that little curtain over there, uh, that's I detest that piece of clothing. It's the ugliest thing I've ever seen. Or you could say, uh, you could if you didn't like it, you could say, I have uh, another piece of cloth that you know 
might go really well over there or you I mean, there's so many things the way you the way you phrase things can can you can use not I, I know some people who they never get tired of using a negative in a sentence everything is and it's it, it's a it's an interesting exercise to try to uh use to twist something into a into positive a positive uh you know send it in a positive direction rather than say no or not there's a um, try eliminating those those words there's something that i just did uh that i really enjoyed called the 20 day no complain challenge Mm. where you wear a bracelet or a rubber band on one hand and you can't complain about anything and if you do you have to switch the rubber band onto the other wrist and you have to start again but it has profound psychological impacts, and I found that I would catch myself m- multiple times throughout the day about to say something and just like offloading some negative story onto someone else. And it didn't. All that does really is is just it's like contagious. You know, it's like you're sneezing on someone else. It doesn't. When you sneeze on someone else, it doesn't make your sickness go away. It just spreads it. Right. But if you can cover your mouth, then it can at least keep it within yourself mm-hmm. and then, you know, write about it or, you know, do something on your own. But, yeah, I have a big problem with people that will just offload their negativity without being conscious of the situation. People will just go into a new spot and take up that. Uh, am I being negative right now? Shit. No. <laughs> Am I well, complaining? <clears throat> Am I complaining about the the 20-day no-complain challenge? I don't know if you are or not. I wouldn't be the one to tell you. I mean, um, I think you're doing fine. I think uh, you're, you... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about you for a couple minutes now because I wanted to, that to happen. Um, I have learned more about you uh, listening to the podcast you've done with other people around the world than I ever knew about you in your real life as Kyle Tierman, my son, who I saw being born and I helped raise you and asked you questions and never got responses like I things that I hear from you. Even, even in casual conversations with you, during the day or when we cross paths in Santa Cruz, I never ever learned as much about you as I have learned by the questions and the comments that you make during your podcasts. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it, it's really interesting. It's almost like, it's almost like I never really knew you before you did your podcasts. Because it's probably a father son kind of relationship thing where you have a little bit of reticence about talking to me about certain things, but you'll tell the whole world (laughs) the most intimate shit. And so I am really grateful for, for the, for the podcast that you've done. And, uh, I have to say almost everything that you have gotten pretty damn good at, uh, the surfing stuff, uh, the podcast stuff, uh, the writing stuff and the um, now coming up on the comedy stuff. I, I, when you said, Dad, I'm going to be a surfer, I'm going to be a professional surfer, I remember my mind just 
twisting into a pretzel like, oh my God. Oh, it's I've failed. <laughs> I've failed. I mean, I, 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 how, I mean, I, ah, but I, I mean, the, the, all the lights are flashing, but I really, really tried my damnedest. And I wish parents would do this more with their children. Just try your damnedest to nod and say, you must know what you're doing. You, you, I'm sure you know what you're doing. You, you, because that's what people want to hear. They want to, they want to hear you, you really, you know what you, I'm sure you know what you're doing. And even if they say, no, I don't, but I'm, I'm going to learn. Like, like you said about comedy. I'm just like, stand up comedy. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It's like, no dad. Uh, you know, uh, I'm doing it four nights a week. Uh, I'm, I'm really, I really suck at it now, but I'm, I'm going to get good. It's like, right. Good. Wow. <laughs> you know, and I, you know, the serving thing is like, what? How are you going to do that? How could you possibly do that? The writing stuff. You never were a writer. You never wrote anything, but you just said, you just sat down. You said, I'm going to just practice, just practice, just practice, just keep doing it. Just, and I think you're, you're a good example of somebody who, I mean, honestly, if anybody wanted to do anything, they just have to, they just have to carve out the time to do it and read about it and listen to other people talk about it and ask questions about it and just do it. It's not about thinking about doing it. It's not about dreaming about doing it. It's just about sticking your neck out. It's like buy the plane ticket. You want to travel? You want to travel? You know, buy, buy a plane ticket somewhere, even if it's in six months or a year, buy the ticket and you will go, you will go, but you have to put some skin in the game and it will just all work out. So amazing. So amazingly. Yeah. Thanks, man. That means a lot to me. I appreciate it. I, uh, I do think that I'm an example of someone who's not necessarily naturally good at, at a lot of things, but I, I do understand what it takes to get good at things. Uh, how did you understand that? How did you find out uh, how to do that? I, you know, I think that a lot of it has come in more recent years. I think that podcasts have had a tremendous impact on my life. Um, when I was in high school and, uh, and uh, you know, when I was in high school, I, I feel like there was a, a pretty fundamental shift that happened for me. I was always curious and I was always... Uh, I, I always was had a high tolerance for risk at growing up skateboarding and surfing. I'd always try different things and I kind of identified as a person who would go do like Ollie off the roof or go try and surf the bigger wave or do something that was embarrassing in front of a crowd. I think that maybe that was naturally just a, a gift uh, that also resulted in four broken arms and, you know. I videotaped you breaking your arm. You, yeah, <laughs> I guess that makes it five because I don't even count that one as a broken arm. Four surgeries, five fractured wrists. But, uh, so I think that that was always natural. Um, but when I was in high school and I started doing the homeschool thing, uh, I really had to... Um, 
learn time management and I had to learn how to make my own schedule. And it was around that time that I read a book that um, was really influential to me. Like, you know how books will come into your life at certain times and, you know, if it came in at the wrong time, you would just put it down. But there was a book called The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin. He was this chess chess prodigy. We talk about him a lot on the podcast. Uh, who then became one of the world champions in uh, in Tai Chi push hands martial arts. And he wrote this book about the art of learning and what it takes to learn things uh, and strategies for doing things like making smaller circles. If you have this big audacious goal, uh, how you can make that goal smaller and more specific. So rather than saying like, oh, I want to go, you know, I want to get good at surfing. I I will go out and I'll say, I want to catch three good waves or I want to attempt this maneuver. Um, And I didn't always have that from the beginning. I think that it was high school and then into college that I learned how to become more specific about the goals that I was setting for myself Hmm. uh, and become more specific about the failures. I think that I'm actually prone to thinking about myself as, I don't know, like the the, the hardest times I've ever had are when I think absolutely about myself. Like I am absolutely a failure. I am absolutely, this is... I'm not good at surfing. I'm not good at writing or whatever. And when I, whenever I go into those psychological patterns, I can, I, I, I now use it as a kind of a red flag to pause because I know that that's not true. I may have failed at something. Chances are it was an indicator that oh, I didn't do something well. But if I can focus in on what that something was rather than me as a whole, it allows it to be, it allows the whole pursuit to be a little bit, bit more light and playful. Uh, so that's what I do with comedy. And I still suck at comedy. But like, I don't go out and try and tell jokes and look at it as a success if I made a bunch of people laugh the whole way through the set or a failure if I didn't. I look at it as uh, if I can tell a new joke or have a new tag. Uh, that makes people laugh, I see that as a success. Even if the rest of the set was kind of bumpy and weird and awkward. Because uh, then it, it allows me to not identify so completely with it being a success or a failure. Um, so I think that that book was really influential what for me. What was the name of the book again? The Art of Learning. And it was then around that time in college when I uh, got turned on to podcasts. And I got turned on to... Uh, the two that influenced me early on and are two of the biggest podcasts in the world were the Joe Rogan experience and the Tim Ferriss show. Um, Joe Rogan's a comedian who more just does these long form interview, long, just more conversations. Uh, but he, he sits down with very successful people, people who have achieved their goals. And, uh, you just, I mean, it's not always advice that they're giving, but you just get to sit in the room in this really intimate way, as you said, that you get to by listening to my podcast, and you kind of get the sense of what it took for them, what their mindset was when when approaching this goal. Uh, and Tim Ferriss is much more tactical about his interviews, and it's much more about information extraction. And a few of the pieces, pieces of advice that he 
gives and that his guests have given, I've really taken with me. And sometimes it's advice that I hadn't even, that I won't use for like a year. And then I'll, I'll think of it and I'll think, oh, that was, that was a little moment there that, you know, that I remember this guy, this gal talking about that now I'm going to use here. Um, so like one of my favorites, one of my favorite kind of quotes that I live by is you're the median of the five people you surround yourself with most. Um, hmm. And I think that I surrounded myself with a lot of podcasts because you're in the room with them. And I just spend a lot of hours listening and sitting and that's all I've, I mean, that's actually one of the, my like markers for success really in, in my life uh, is what what rooms am I sitting in and what what groups do I have access to uh, and you know that was what was so exciting a few years ago about meeting Chris Ryan and having him you know take me under his wing and introducing me to all these other really great writers down in LA and uh, just smart people was that I got to sit in the room with them and ask them questions uh, and I mean, you would always try and get me to read books when I was a kid, and I was not that into it. You weren't into I was, anything I suggested. No, I was into... Hey, you want to go see this? Nah, I don't want to do that. I want to go skateboard. Nah, I don't want to do that. All I wanted uh-huh. to do was go skateboard. Yeah. I was I would spend six hours a day skateboarding. Yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't know how to get you to motivate you to do anything that I thought I thought would be interesting. But uh, you found your you found the twi- little twinkle that you followed, which is which is what uh, which is what I think most people just have to let other humans follow their their bliss. Just you know, water their passion and, and just just encourage them to follow whatever. Because you put doubts in somebody's mind about what they really want to do, and it just slows them down. It just slows them so far down. And then when they could just be leaping forward you know if if they were just allowed to exercise and water their passions yeah i'll tell you a little quick quick story about failure <clears throat> there's a guy named arthur levinson who was the ceo of genentech which is one of the big biotech uh companies in silicon valley <clears throat> he was voted i think three years in a row as best ceo in silicon valley and I, I interviewed him for a piece that was hap- that was was done around uh, UC Santa Cruz on the uh, one of the founders videos that we did for them. Um, and you know, I we Arthur Levinson, who now is chairman of Apple Computer, and I, he's he's on boards. I mean, of all the biggest Google and all these other huge, he's one of those movers, sure. huge mover shakers. Um, you were interviewing him. Yeah, I was interviewing him. We had ten minutes, five minutes. I don't know. He's he's one of those guys that you just like. He walks into the room. What are the questions? Sit down. We had it all lit up for him. Boom, 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 boom. Are we done, uh, Mr. Levinson? I one question for you. Um, and I said, you know, you were. I didn't. And I we had specific questions we had to ask him. We we couldn't ask him anything else. But at the end of those specific questions, I said. I'm just curious if you'd tell me why you think you were voted best CEO for three years. What, why, why would you say that that happened? And he, and everybody goes, well, uh, this is not, on, this is not on the sheet. You, you know, it's like, no, no, Mr. Levinson says, 
he so so he looks at me. He goes, he says, you know what? The reason I was voted best CEO is because I reward failure. He says if I pick somebody to to if somebody comes to me in the company and says I've got an idea, here's why I think it could work. I'm gonna I'm gonna really move it. Here's how I'm gonna do it. Here's my plan. Here's the people I want to work with. <clears throat> and they get all the way to the end of the line. And it's a flop. It doesn't work. He says a lot of times, you know, the person, they will spend a lot of money, sometimes millions of dollars. And they just, you know, they lose their job. They, they, they go away. He says, no, I'm going to reward that person for doing that. The person, the person had an idea. Not all ideas will work. But, but to reward somebody means go out and get another idea. Get, get another idea. Just... Just why would why would I slap a person down to you know who who just by just because of who knows what it could be some weird thing that happens you know that just didn't wasn't the right time before time or but anyway yeah I, I always thought that was a really interesting <clears throat> yeah you gotta see it as see every failure as a learning. It sounds trite to say. It's a mistake. You only, you learn from your mistakes and a mistake one could say is a, is a failure, but it's, you, you, chances are you don't, you don't make that same mistake again. I mean, a, a, a pilot you want to fly with is a pilot who's made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. That's the pilot you want to, who has come to the edge of, and has had this shit scared out of them. They are never going to do that again. Yeah, you could be sure. And and you gotta ask for feedback. I think that that's. I mean, if if because I didn't as as I mentioned, I was not a reader growing up. You would read to me. You know, we'd read we'd you know blow through the Harry Potter no- novels, and uh, I was into Ender's Game and a few of those books. But I didn't I didn't read a lot of books through high school. Right. Uh, and I was a fairly slow reader. Um, and I and I most importantly thought of myself as a slow reader and thought of myself as not really someone who could read or write very well. Uh, and I then, it, I think it was really only in the last four years, three or four years, that I uh, I started writing for Santa Cruz Waves magazine. I would write a, a bi-monthly column as well as a lot of their in-depth articles. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Tyler Fox, who's a buddy of mine who let me start writing. And what that allowed me to do was gain access to an editor, which was so important. Uh, and because that allowed me to get better at writing. Um, but I just realized that a lot of the people who I wanted to be around, who I thought were really cool cats and were older than me, were uh, good readers and good writers. Right. So I just figured, like, okay if I want to have any shot of having this kind of the kind of mental clarity and quickness that some of these people have, I think I need to get serious about reading and writing. Uh, and then, you know, the advice that everyone gives is try and do it around the same time every day. You know, so I would, uh, I mean, these days I, I clear my mornings and will either read or write for about an hour now. And, uh, I learned, you know, I and and I even, uh, you know, since I'm doing this weekly newsletter where I'm starting to write these fun little short stories, I solicited one of my podcast guests, this guy Steve Hawk, who is the former editor of uh, Surfing Magazine, and uh, 
he's been in the surfing surfing world for a long time. He's a very talented journalist. And uh, I just solicited him and said, hey, will you help? Will you edit my stuff? And uh, he's been immensely helpful. Uh, and that's... Uh, I think it's helping me not make those same mistakes twice. Because one of the problems about mistakes is that you don't always know that you're making a mistake until someone else points it out to you. Right. You know, so I uh, I try and ask like a question rather than rather than like like if I if I do a podcast or if I write an article, I'll try not to say something like, um, "Did you like it?" I'll say like, "Do you, you know were there any parts of it that you?" found like confusing or didn't make sense to you you know like you got to veer people in that direction so yeah. they, so that they want to give you feedback and it's important but, to have the accountability factor too i mean to 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 say i i'm doing a weekly thing thing yeah it puts you it puts puts you up on you know you 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 have to show up yeah you have you you or you you commit to doing uh, a stand-up Com- comedy comedy routine or you commit to getting out there and taking the biggest wave that you can possibly take you know and trying to tr- you know you got to do it you got yeah. to somehow find that wave or to find you know i think i think showing up just thinking about doing it you, you got to put you got to get some skin in the game and actually it's just time spent doing it it's time you got to spend time doing it and you got to put your phone in the other room when you're doing it. Right. You keep your phone on airplane mode and keep it in the other room and just commit to sitting down and doing it. Yeah. Uh, there's a writer named Neil Gaiman and he said something that really stuck with me. It was in a Tim Ferriss episode, but he said, when I sit down to write, he's an incredibly pro- prolific writer. He said, I will give myself a choice. I'll say, uh, you can write or you can not write, um, but you can't get up from this seat and you can't do anything else. So you can just sit here and look at the computer and just trip around in your seat, but you can't read. You can't look at your phone. And he said, and pretty quickly, I real when I give myself those two choices, I realizing that writing is the more fun of the two options, <laughs> which is, I always just love that. I think that's such a good, uh, good way to think about it. But yeah, I I, um, I guess I'm more. It's it's not that like failure doesn't really hurt sometimes, and I think it hurts even more for me. Like if I've been drinking alcohol or if I haven't been exercising and my body feels shitty, then I kind of embody that that blow a little bit more. I can't just like laugh it off, uh, you know. And I've had some some nights where I go off of you know trying to tell jokes in front of fifteen people, and I feel like I'm gonna fucking throw up it just was so not what i, I can't imagine that did that. not go the way i expected it to go damn but uh i guess i'm more afraid of um i'm more afraid of thinking that i'm really good at something and not being good at it i'm terrified of having that truman show moment where i realize that the world is not what i thought it would be or, or I am not who I thought I was in this world. And like, I meet people who are you know, so chauvinistic and overconfident and they're overconfident in their ability. And I'm terrified of being one of those people. And they're the people that haven't embodied failure 
or embodied like self doubt and <laughs> self doubt can be really helpful, you know. Uh, I hate Harley Davidson's <laughs> podcast. I've learned to loathe lawnmowers and po- and and Harley Davidson's. Well, mind. you know the the the, I- the idea that you, who you are is not what you do. It's not what you not necessarily what you think. I always I always like this. I some I think probably was some. I, maybe it was Adi Shah, I'm not sure, but he said, he, he, he said, you know, there's something in a, when you ask yourself who you are, who, he, he, like, who are you, Kyle Tierman? Well, uh, are you the surfing? Are you the skateboarding? Are you the reading, writing, com- comedy? Are you the performer? Are you the person who cuts up vegetables? Uh, who are you? Are you any of those things? You could probably come up with hundreds of little, like say you're peeling back an onion and you just keep peeling these things away that people say, well, Kyle is this surfer guy. Kyle is this writer guy. Kyle is this, this is. And you know that that's not exactly who you are. You know, you know, you, you have all these talents, you have a lot of abilities, whatever. We all do. But if you keep peeling these things away as not really being who you are, that being something much more, much deeper inside of you. you uh, I love I love this when this, this guy was d- d- describing this. You get to this place where there's nothing left to peel away. There's, there's no more things that you can think of that you can, that you can do or that you think you are or that you hope you are or that you, your talents that you learned or things that, you know, it's all gone. All the peel, all the peels are are gone, and there's something left, but you don't know what it is. It's just this uniquely you. It's like, it's it's Kyle Tierman, you know, or in my case, you know, Eric Tierman, whatever. But there's something you know is there, but you can't put a finger. You can't describe it. You can't. You, it's indescribable. That's where you can go you can always go there when it seems like all the world is is collapsing around you you know that 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 uh what what it's just a it's this 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 integrity that you that 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 you know you have one has everybody has everybody has that that integrity in them after they peel all of their abilities away from them. And that that's kind of what I look for. I, I try to look for that after people have told me all the things that they're, that they can do. And that they, you know, you know, it, 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 you know what I mean? It's, it's like, who are we really? Are we, are we what we do? Are we what we say? Are we, who we embody? Are we, how we make other people feel? Are we any of those things? We're a combination of those things, but that's that's not really. If we get really quiet, it's not really who, who we, who I or you really is. I, I love that mystery. It's it's a, it's not only it's it's a positive mystery because you can you can go there. You know your that uniqueness that's that's so that's so wonderful you know there's a uniqueness in everybody and look for that in people just look look for it because 
you get into trouble when you when you identify other people with who they are, how much money they have, their talents, their blah, 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 you know, it's like list of all the great things and they just keep adding to this list of abilities. You can get into trouble, you know. Uh, you, you get into trouble knowing people on that basis. Look, look deep in somebody's eyes and just like, who really are you in there, you know? And when the time calls for it, pick up some food off their shoe. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. Oh, I guess. Or whatever, whatever, whatever makes you, whatever motivates you, yeah, I guess, yeah. Get motivated. Get motivated. Because time, you know, I feel like I'm just getting started. I'm, I'm 72, but I still feel, I wake up in the morning and go, okay, I can do things so much faster than I ever was able to do them. And there's so many wonderful things that I want to experience and do. And so it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great time to be alive. I mean, I honestly got to tell you, I'm not in any way uh, discouraged uh, uh, about the world or what's happening. I just, I look at that there are things that need to be solved. Let's go solve them. Let's do it. E.T., this was a great podcast, man. Oh, well, I... This, it was like a great podcast, and then I realized you're my dad, too. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're damn good at this. Oh, yeah. Well, I... I okay. You're, you're loquacious. You can tell some stories. I'll accept. I'll Thank accept. you so much. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Was Is there a place that uh, people can get in touch with you? Sure. I mean, I... I uh, my email address you mean sure kind of if, if you want to put it out there on the to the audience <laughs> that could be interesting i don't know um i may not be able to get back to you but my email is eric at eric at impactcreative.com impact creative is a company that i have had for many years and it's mostly run by other more talented people than me um i'll, I'll I'll very, be very quick to say. But um, Impact Creative is a media company, and you can get in touch with me there. Thank you. Thank you. This is a blast. Thank you very much. Bye. That's the show. I'm going to end this podcast with a song called Leavin' by West of Mall Bay. They listened to this podcast, and they sent me some music. If you're a musician and you want your tunes played, uh, email the music to info at kyle.surf, and I will link to your band page in the show notes below. Thank you also to Santa Cruz Medicinals for sponsoring each and every one of these podcasts. Head over to scmedicinals.com, type in the code name KYLE10, and get 10% off any product. You can also sign up for my newsletter at kyle.surf. I send it out every single Friday. With that, I hope that you all have a wonderful day. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this song called Leavin' by West of Malbay. <laughs>